I'm Beth Bruno, and you're listening to the Fierce and Lovely Podcast. This is a podcast for women who wonder how strength and weakness coexist, or how to bless both bravery and tenderness. For those longing to bring the fullness of their glory to the world without a chip on their shoulder. For those who have embraced a global sisterhood and left small storied lives behind, this is for you. The fierce and lovely women seeking the both and of a big storied life. Join me as I chat with fierce and lovely women around the world. Hello. In today's episode, I have the great honor and privilege of hosting Rebecca Dang. Rebecca is of South Sudan's Dinka tribe, and she is one of the 89 lost girls of Sudan who was relocated to the United States in 2000 after living eight years in a refugee camp in northern Kenya. I think we've all heard of the 3,000 lost boys who were relocated here and never really knew that 89 of those kids were girls. The violence that Rebecca experienced as a child during the Second Sudanese Civil War has given her an incredible empathy for children and young adults who face similar situations today. She has become an international speaker and advocate for women and children who have suffered trauma and been victimized by war. She has spoken at the United Nations and served as a Refugee Congress Delegate at the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees in Washington, D.C., She has also led a 65-person team of referendum workers at the 2011 Out-of-the-Country Voting Center for the South Sudanese Independence Referendum. Most recently, she worked with the American Bible Society's mission, Trauma Healing Program, uh, focused on women and children who suffered trauma during war. Rebecca is a friend. And she is an amazing woman, wife, mother, currently living in Michigan, um, but on her way uh, to Uganda with her husband. And so I was just so excited to be able to get to talk with her. Her story is coming out in a book called What You Meant for Evil um, this fall. And we talk a little bit about that. But this is just an incredible honor to get to hear a little bit of her heart Um What They Meant for Evil is the name of her book, How a Lost Girl of Sudan Found Healing, Peace, and Purpose in the Midst of Suffering. Well, before I go to my conversation with Rebecca, I want to highlight just a couple of things. I have so loved seeing some of your reviews that you have left on iTunes, and I wanted to just read one uh, by Grateful. Uh, She says, this is a source for inspiration and heart change. I love everything about this podcast, from the intro music to the incredible stories shared. I often listen to these on a trail run, and every time the run turns into a prayer for world change and inspiration to be a voice of hope to my community. 
What a gift to hear stories of women impacting this world for good. One of my favorites was Fiona in Spain. Heard this podcast on my way home from a work conference. Her stories took my breath away, and I spent the remainder of the drive praying for that part of the world. Thank you, Beth, for using your passion to provide a tool to open our eyes. I love that. And I'm thinking that based on some of these reviews, most of you are runners and you're like listening to this while you're running and exercising, which is more than I can say. So fun. Thanks for leaving a review. If you haven't already, I would love to hear from you. The lost story of a woman that I want to bring to you before I jump to my conversation with Rebecca is um, of a woman from Kenya. And I first learned about this woman from a friend of mine named Tamara Cook, who is living there in Kenya right now with her family. And uh, this woman is Wangari Mahatai. And Wangari won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2004. She passed away in 2011, but she is known for starting what's called the Green Belt Movement. Um, She was a professor and wanted to respond to the needs of rural Kenyan women who were reporting that their streams and water sources were drying up and their food supply was insecure. They were having to walk further and further to get firewood for uh, fuel, for fencing. And so Wangari began the Greenbelt Movement in an effort to encourage the women to work together to grow seedlings and plant trees that would basically alter the environment and not only improve um, the environmental degradation and deforestation, but increase their food security and ultimately increase their sense of empowerment and connection to their community and to Kenya as a whole. So empowering rural women through um, this Greenbelt movement was her legacy um, for Kenya. And I just love that. I love learning a little bit about a heroine for the Kenyan people, especially since Rebecca spent so many years in a refugee camp in Kenya. And though she is Sudanese, I thought that Wangari's legacy would be one worth looking into. And I will include a link to the Greenbelt movement in the show notes. So without further ado, let me transition this over to my conversation with Rebecca Deng. Hello, Rebecca, and welcome to the Fierce and Lovely podcast. Thank you so much, Beth, for inviting me to be here. I really appreciate it, and I feel honored. Thank you. Well, thank you for taking time to talk with us, talk with me, and share with my listeners uh, today. I've already introed you a little bit and told um, everybody a little bit about your upcoming book and um, some of the various roles that you have been playing, uh, but I would love just for you to flesh that out a bit personally. Tell us a little bit about where you're living and um, what occupies a day-to-day in the life of Rebecca Dang. Yeah, thank you. Right now, um, in the middle of uh, Michigan, Holland, Michigan, um, it's a winterland year, so we have a lot of snow. I, When I think about it, I don't know how the Nilotic girl from East Africa end up <laughs> in the snowland. <laughs> but I'm here. My everyday today is... Uh, you know, waking up and I have two kids uh, under five, Ding, my son, he's uh, three years old, and Leona, um, she's uh, 16 months old. So um, I was working until I had Leona last year um, in October, 
And right now I'm just taking time to be with kids, uh, my two kids, and and to get ready for the book that is coming. So my everyday um, chore include, you know, playing with kids and, you know, cooking and cleaning up and repeating it every yes. five minutes. <laughs> and then, of course, responding to emails about the book-related stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You have had your hands full for sure. And we're going to get to hear so much more of your story, read so much more of your story when your book releases this fall, correct? When is the release September date? 10. Um, September. Yeah, so coming up. It's not it seem far yes. away, but it's going to go so fast. <laughs> Yes, yes. And we will talk with you again then when it releases and um, maybe get a bit more into the details of your book and of your story. But let's let's set the context just briefly a little bit, um, kind of just like the basics of the your story in terms of kind of where you've come from. You mentioned East Africa. Let's talk about specifically uh, where you've come from, because that informs so much, I believe, of your heart and your mm -hmm. passion that I really want to talk about with you today. So can you do that for us? Yes. Briefly? Yeah. So I was born into um, a Dinka tribe. Dinka tribe, they are one of the Nilotic tribes uh, based in South Sudan, and some are in Uganda, Tanzania, and Kenya. Um, so I was born in a small village uh, in a place called Jongle State. Uh, it's in southern part of Sudan. Uh, when I was born, the country used to be Sudan. Uh, it split in 2011. Um, so now it's South Sudan. Um, so I was born in a really beautiful, beautiful village uh, that had everything a child can dream my uh, tribe are cattle herders, so we had a lot of cows and they uh, grow um, sorghum as the main um, stable food and then corn and, you know, calabash and um, all kind of vegetable uh, okra. So I grew up just, you know, grow, growing up there was a paradise to me and uh, uh, it was just a beautiful childhood. Um, it was safe. Um, everything was perfect until I was five, until I was four, and that changed, um, which uh, later landed me at a refugee camp. Uh, that was uh, my uncle told me. I remember asking him, um, "Where are we going? And where are we now?" And he's like, "Oh, we're entering Kenya because we are refugee." And I was like, "What is a refugee?" And, you know, he's like trying to provide an answer, somebody that can be in the country because of they are kicked out or something like that. And then he told me that we were going to be there for a couple of weeks or months and then we'll be back in our village. Well, that turned into eight years. Eight years later, I was still in a refugee camp. And then um, mm. by God's grace and... I end up uh, qualifying for the program Lost Boys of Sudan. And what most people don't understand is that when they lost boys, about 3,700 came in 2000. There was 89 girls that came. Most of us were young, so we had to live uh, with foster family. Um, I was resettled through a local agency here in Michigan called Bethany Christian Services um, as an accompanied refugee minor. So I came in 2000 um, 
I just remember arriving and um, getting out of Grand Rapids Airport and a cold air hitting my face. I have never been that cold in my life. And I was like, what is this place? <laughs> is this United States? You know, uh, and, you know, it was it was crazy. And as we, I just remember driving from the airport to my parent, my foster parent, foster house. I just remember looking at the leaves and the trees and they all looked dead. And I was like, have there been a fire in this place? It looked really horrible. And they're like, mm. no, it's just winter and the leaf will come back in the spring. And I just remember not believing them because in Africa, if you see a tree that dead, uh, there's no life left. Uh, and uh, what's interesting mm. later, like as I look back now, that picture have a lot to do with how my life was arriving as a refugee that didn't speak a word of English and right now speaking to you having a book coming out and a mother of three uh, it's just been been amazing to see spring um, showing in my life. What, what a beautiful vivid picture um, and metaphor for that. You were 15 I believe is that yep, when you I was landed when in Michigan? I landed in Michigan. What what a crazy just age in which to completely uproot and mm-hmm. start from scratch in so many ways. English just being the first of of so many more things mm-hmm. that would follow. I can't imagine, yeah. Rebecca. And I think for me, well, the most I, you know, when we came, um, we landed in Europe first and then to JFK and then from there we split up and uh, that was kind of crazy because we didn't understand English and I thought that we were all going to one place so like splitting us up at the airport with little English was so traumatizing for us as you know just coming to a new country Mm. Um, and yes arriving as a 15 years old uh, that have a equivalent of a third grade English uh, I remember they're like, well, you are 15, so you belong to high school. And I remember my first day of school, I just, I could not understand what the teachers were talking about. Um, so, yeah, it was it was crazy. It was crazy going from, you know, because like in United States, I heard about United States, we hear about it, uh, but I have never even watched a movie to know, like, you know, movie about the U.S., there was nothing. Um, so coming to a country that none of your ancestors have never been there, you don't have any any picture. The only picture we saw was the New York and L.A., like in a postcard, you know. So when I arrived, that's what I thought U.S. is. But then I arrived mm-hmm. in Michigan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Western Michigan, absolutely. Western yeah, Michigan. Which is beautiful in its own way in the summertime, you know, with like Michigan shores. But yeah, that was that was a lot. And then the food is different. I mean, like I was in a refugee camp, so I had food that was just mainly basic like corn and beans, if you are lucky. And most of the time, you didn't even have enough to eat to coming to a food that you can just have anything you want and it's heavy and yeah it, it, there was a lot for me to digest to a lot of adjustments for sure well I know that that experience 
again, that we'll be able to read so much more about in your book. But I know that that lent itself then to so much of the the work that you have been involved in, the traveling and speaking on behalf of other refugees. Yeah, so can you um, tell us a little bit about that? When I was able to finish high school and end up going to Calvin College, um, my heart was always like, okay, I'm here for a reason. I got out of refugee camp. A lot of people didn't. Um, so what do I do? And I was very interested in a career that will um, help me understand humanity and human and why, especially the issue of suffering. So I went into sociology and social work. And then uh, second semester, I took a class on international development studies and I was hooked from there. I was like, you know, this is what I want to do because it will allow me to be here in the U.S. is my home now. Uh, I mean, it's the country that I first had a citizenship of, you know. Uh, I didn't even have a citizenship of the country I was born into Sudan, you know, because Southerners didn't have that right at that time during the war. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I was like, international development makes sense. Um, so I major in international development and minor in social work. And um, that end up taking me to study in Thailand uh, for a semester in Chiang Mai. And from there, I saw there were a lot of refugees from Burma, mainly the hill tribes that were there in um, in Chiang Mai, outside of Chiang Mai. And it just confirmed everything for me. And I'm like, wow, uh, look at these people. It doesn't matter where you are, if you are African, you are American, or you are from Burma, when you are displaced, when your security is threatened and you are kicked out of your of your home or your country, the suffering is similar. So when I came back, I was like, yeah, I want to work in development. But I, it took me back to the time in a refugee camp uh, when the UN will come or like UNICEF and give us food and clothes. But there was nothing with the mental health or like talking about like what is happening and what you are experiencing. So from there, I just start thinking like, God, I really want to do something in a mental health area uh, where people, if they are people of faith, they can honestly lament and ask God, why me and why this? Uh, God really honor my prayers and I end up working with American Bible Society, they ha- they used to have a program called She's My Sister, which is now a trauma healing program. And mainly it began in the Great Lakes region of Africa, um, dealing with the issues of trauma uh, that were done to women and children and of course the community. And that just really speak to my heart because I'm like, yeah, um, we can have food, we can have water, but if we don't address those issues of our heart, it's just, you know, you, 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 know, you have to wake up the next day because you feel right in your heart. And if yes. your heart is not in a right place, there's no way to get out, you know, because I feel sometimes with development, we come with development theories and money and pour them there. But if a human being is not right, internally in their heart 
how can they get out of bed and build a school and hospital and be a good leaders, be a president of a country that don't abuse people? They have to look into their own wounds. Mm-hmm. And when they deal with those wounds of their own heart, they can then, you, 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 I, I always, I really just believe you can give what you don't have. If you don't have that internal peace in your heart, you can be a good leader for the community. You can be a good leader for a student. Uh, and so, yeah, I end up doing that work. So I was, I did it for the last five years. And again, like I say in the beginning, I stopped last year in June to focus on the book and and um, and just be with my right. kids. But it's uh, it's something that is in my heart, and I would like to see um, that work. And has as my book come out, uh, really my dream is to empower refugee children. You know, all all over the world, they could be from Middle East, Africa, Europe, anywhere. Um, and then I have. Uh, obligation too to as an American. I'm here in the U.S. Uh, I'm a millennium and I have younger generation that are here and I want to talk to them. Uh, you know what? Refugee is an interesting thing uh, because it's like somebody that left their country, but you can be a refugee by spiritually or you can be a refugee by just feeling different. The whole idea of refugee is somebody that doesn't fit in and there's a lot of our youth here that feel like they don't fit in. Uh, they don't mm-hmm. fit into their community or a school or a culture or all that. And I want to explore that. What does it mean to be a complete human being and to have a name? Um, which, what I mean by that is that you are value as a human being as whole and not just as, you know, another number of students that is in high school that you have a voice. Yeah. Yes, and that is so much of my mm-hmm. heart and passion as well is to, particularly with young women, help them to realize mm-hmm. that they have a voice and help them to see that they're a part of a global sisterhood, right? And a, a bigger story that is being written in the world that is so much more than just the hallways of their school. And I agree, so many girls and and boys struggle with that feeling of being a refugee in their own schools and classrooms. And I wonder, is it because they lack a vision for that bigger story? They're living a small storied life. It's very myopic. It's very focused on their own troubles as an American, completely unaware of what else is happening around the world with, with other girls their age in a different country like Kenya. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And I think education is so important. Um, I think people have to see themselves in a story that is being told. Like if these students, uh, what is fed to them is not a bigger picture. It's not how they wall. And they are smart. They are on YouTube. They are online. They are reading issues of the world. So if we adults don't carry on a conversation, in the most honest way, because they ask questions. They will ask, like, why is this war? And why are these children suffering? And why are they a post-marriage for a young girl as young as 12, 13? 
what can we do? If we don't entertain that in a most healthy way, they're going to seek attention in a different way, right? Yes, or, or, yes. or just uh, how to deal with that in a different way. But if we say, yes, you do have a power. If they write a letter to a Congress or to policymakers and say that we saw this in this country, we want your voices, and they include those Congress people and they included people from the community and people from the uh, school and people from the church, um, we can make a change. I mean, when the Lost Boys of Sudan program was approved, it took policymakers and people from churches and uh, people in a Congress that were saying that there were there are these young children that have been pulled out of Sudan. They walk all the way to Ethiopia and most of them die. And now they are in a refugee camp and they have been there for eight years. We need to resettle them. We need to give these children a chance. It will start with maybe one, two, three people and grow. And, you know, you there you go. You have Rebecca Deng. So <laughs> having, yes. having a community that rally around the youth and uh, student and listen to them and figuring out the bigger picture of how they can use their talent and their voices is the way forward. But ignoring it is not going to do anything, you know, because they're going to try to do it, but maybe in a wrong way. So if they have adults that know the world, they understand the politics, they understand the culture of the world, and they're like, okay, we can design this program, or you guys can design it, and this is what we think. You know, coming alongside them and learning together at the table, um, yeah, I absolutely yes. agree. Rebecca, what do you think, having, I'm sure you still have your hands involved in your culture in in the refugee camp. I'm sure you're still in touch with friends or family. What, as you consider youth in other cultures, where do you see some of the greatest similarities to youth that you know right there in Michigan? What are some of the shared mm-hmm. things that that they're facing and struggling with and thinking about? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think all youth just struggle with the issue of identity like who am i where do i fit in it doesn't matter what culture it doesn't matter if you are in a house that have food and water and or you are living on the street really you have to they all struggle with that identity thing like who am i what was i created for and what can i do I have seen that here in Michigan uh, with youth that have really loving home, but they struggle with the uh, issue of identity. And I have seen it, of of course, and have experienced it when I was in a refugee camp uh, of, you know, like it's really uh, being married at 13, 14, my only hope. Uh, It's really my identity, just a number on the ID card, or am I more than that? Um, so those are the similarity that I I have seen with the youth where they just uh, want to know really where do they fall in and and the identity uh, mm-hmm. and what we can do as a community and a society is that it take a village right like these youth they people need to listen to them what they are saying and people of uh, I would say people that are just informed that are informed 
uh, about world politics, uh, religion, that are informed about the traumas of the world and, and, and help these kids explore those questions and directing them and telling them, you know what? Uh, you think now like, oh, I really just want to help the world. We can do it one step at a time. <laughs> because sometimes you find some kids that are like, I just want to do this and I'm going to run away and do it without guidance or wisdom of parent, you know, because parents have more experience. So I think, um, yeah, just listening to them and working with them and telling them, well, these are the steps you really want to change the world. Well, why don't you come? Maybe there's a program that can bring you to a refugee camp for two weeks and volunteer there. Uh, you know, this, yeah. The, the, yes. they can, you go ahead. Let's talk. No, yeah, and then they thought. can see, okay, I'm going to volunteer there. And then they see, they, they will become friends with those girls and they will see their need. And maybe that will influence what they go. Would they want to go for journalism? Do they want to teach English? Uh, are they going to go to policy-related uh, career so that they can influence uh, policies of the world? Are they going to do business so that they can uh, capture the talents of these uh, youth and change the world? <laughs> yeah. Yes. They have to yes. be exposed to mm-hmm. the world's hurting and pain. They have to enter in and, and immerse themselves in some of those stories, right? To really have it grip their heart and to step into maybe the role that, that God mm-hmm. has called them to play. So I'm, I'm curious about the refugee camp that mm-hmm. you were in or the one you keep referring to. Is it, it is still open? Yes, it is still in open. Kenya? So it opened in 1991, 92, and is still open now. So in that refugee camp, my friend that were my age met, we arrived there at six, seven at the refugee camp. They have their children and their children are 17 now and they have their children. So you have three generations in a refugee camp. That's a long time to be in a refugee camp. And what, and what break my heart yes. is that um, these refugees camp, they are their home. They don't know anything about the origin countries they are just there but the thing is if there's no opportunities like uh, training or education you really can you you can you can get a job because you are a refugee and you only have a U.S. ocean card that feed you um and it just to me it's just numbing because i'm like these kids are smart and they have potential if they can go to school and we have seen it there are a lot of girls or boys that got a scholarship uh, outside of a refugee camp, and they are doing well. They are transforming their communities. Uh, things are getting better. Um, those girls that didn't get married at 13, 14, you know, uh, they become better mothers later on, and, and they uh, the dying at childbirth is decreasing, you know. So you see those, you know that they are positive, and I just hope that more nations and communities can rally and say, well, these children cannot get out of refugee camp. 
uh, as we know, coming to the U.S., there's not a lot of refugees coming in now. And others countries are not really taking that money refugees. So it's like if they're going to be there 16, 20 years in a refugee camp, what can we do? Can we come to them and provide this mm-hmm. program? Uh, yeah. And I know that's one of your your visions of as a result of the book is to be able mm-hmm. perhaps to even start a school that you would be able to scholarship some of those girls and is it a girls' school that you're envisioning or co-ed school? Yeah, I'm, I'm envisioning mostly like girls, but I know there's a lot of boys um, that are orphaned and don't have opportunities and are bright. So I would say the focus is more on a girly school. That's what I want to see, but include some boys too. And the whole idea when I did the trauma healing training it take a village, right? We cannot, we cannot reach to women only and leave the men out. Uh, they have to be part of a journey. Uh, but my heart is more toward women because I know that if if a family have, you know, like four boys and uh, eight girls, they're probably gonna put boys through education and not a girl, just because of cultural baggage around. You know, man is the one. Uh, that can provide and all of that. Uh, so I know a lot of girls are neglected and um, not given the same opportunity. And I think that's why I'm leaning toward girls' education. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Rebecca, I don't, I don't want to put words in your mouth or presume that this is how you might feel. But I wonder if you're often frustrated with with fellow Americans um, and the lack of view towards the world. And you have seen so much, you have experienced so much, so much heartache, and you are just so in touch still with, with your community. How have you handled, so I'm imagining that you've experienced some frustration. It's, would I be correct in imagining that? <laughs> Oh yeah, okay. absolutely. Okay. So how have you yeah. handled that? I guess my question is then, how have you handled um the frustration with where you live and the ways in which we Americans so often are just too focused on our own culture and our own issues. Mm-hmm. And yet still ha- held on to faith that and hope in what could be. Mhm. Yeah, I um yeah, I really get frustrated especially when we are the most powerful nation in the world and that we have education. We can go on the internet and learn, but we choose to just focus on our own self. And when you look at the trends of the world, it's that the world is getting smaller. And if we really want to keep up with our views and values and share them with others, human community, there's no way we can just focus on ourselves but to be out there. So I really feel frustrated sometimes when people shelter children or the community like, oh, this is just too much and it's too much suffering. We are only going to be here. There's no way to be safe. There's news. People are going to see it in the news, whether you don't want to hear it or not, you will experience. So the better way is to be informed about the world issues and seeing yourself, like, what can I do as an, an American student, American mom, American 
grandmother or grandfather because this concern my grandkid. Um, so I think I will start with that question of like, what can I do uh, to contribute to the world? Because the world is getting smaller and what happened in South Sudan or in Turkey or in Israel or in Vietnam is connected to us because I'm pretty sure in each family or community, each person have a friend, right? That might have come from those countries. So the whole idea of thinking that it's just over there, it's not over here, it's, it, it's just a delusional thinking, you know. Uh, we are connected yeah. than we, we, we think. Uh, so I think, and I think second is to be patient for some of us that are, that have trouble internationally and are connected internationally is just to be patient with those who have not done so, but there is a need for more education. So providing that information and maybe asking community, like if you're not aware about this topic, would you like to hear more? Can we get together for tea? Can we get together for a weekend here? I feel like uh, we will get a lot out of that. Uh, and I just feel here in the U.S. because of uh, we have been exposed to suffering, but not like the rest of the world. So for some people, you have your whole family, you have your children, that's your community. And so sometimes it's hard to reach outside of others, people, but it's like, if you reach out there, you will be so blessed. Your children will totally have a different worldview. When my foster parent took me in, they were pregnant for, with their first born child. That baby growing up, have refugees in a house, he knew a lot of a, a lot about Sudanese refugees and Burmese refugees because my foster parent brought those in their house, you know? So he's going to have a knowledge that somebody that was not exposed to that will never have. And I think that's why it's important as a community to ask ourselves, these are the world issues facing us right now, uh, education-related issues, uh, anger and poverty and water, um, you know, child marriage. Like, where do I see myself and how can I be that? And I think what I can encourage my fellow American is to reach out, reach out to those in your community that have those connections outside and they are, they are doing a program or they know more about it. Ask, ask them. Uh, mm -hmm. Or be more, you know, when your children are doing um world culture project through high school or middle school um, try to find people if your child choose a project on um, for Bhutan like to study Bhutan or Bhutanese culture try to seek out in a community are there like uh, people from that country uh, what you know just invite them for tea I think as an American, we just need to open our hearts and our homes more. Um, there's just so much blessing in that. And especially the community of faith. We have learned in the Bible that welcoming the strangers is a blessing. And it's a blessing both ways. You know, you might think that you're blessing that person, but you might walk away with life lessons that uh, bring more blessing to you. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yes. And I think in the absence of having someone 
proximate in your life, maybe, who doesn't live in the community? How do we still create those connections and bridge the world, make it smaller through relationships? You talked about how the world is getting so much smaller, and the reality is that we probably are connected to at least one person in some of these other countries. But Rebecca, I honestly think that there's a lot of American families who aren't at all. And that's where I love, I just love that you and I are going to start dreaming a little bit in terms of how to provide those opportunities, Mm -hmm. especially for American girls, for young women in, in America to to connect with some of their global sisters Mm -hmm. in this refugee camp or in Kenya and flatten the world a little bit for them, give them a bigger picture of, of the world that God has created and how they're a part of it. Because sometimes it's there, they aren't in our communities. I, for instance, live in such a white community. Um, There are, there's a handful of internationals associated with our university, but it, it is Mm -hmm. challenging and yet, you're right, we have the internet. We have ability to connect with individuals who live in all parts of the world. And so I would just love to dream with you a little bit about how we could do that well and provide those sorts of opportunities for for Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and we are so blessed. Um, one of the things, like... Um, one of my friends asked me last year, like, you know, there's so much fighting in Africa and a lot of trauma and war and all of that. And how come that is? And I say that uh, most of them, yes, they are tribal war. They are war of that. But they start when people don't talk, when you don't eat together. They start small, right? They start they start of like, oh, this person, I can't sit at the table with them. And then before you know it, we are totally living in different communities. And before you know it, they, those people are in a category of your enemies. And uh, we have seen through ancient time, those who eat together, those who come together, provide a table, talk, you know, you become, you become family. You argue, yes, but you argue with love and you disagree with love. I'm not saying that. I think one of the best thing about this country, the United States, that I love the most is the freedom of speech and freedom of believing what you believe. I don't want anybody to be like, in the same party or not or all of these. Those are a diversity of our voices, but can we sit at the table and look at each other in the eye and see a image of God? And say, you know what, what do you say, Beth? I disagree with you. And this is A, B, C, D that I disagree. And hear you out with respect. If we do that, I think that the world will be a much better place. Nobody is asking everybody to like believe the same thing or do the same thing. Uh, we're just asking people to come to the table and to honestly serve each other. Serve each other food, water and serve each other ideas. That's all I think um, we need to just be more aware and how can we do that as an American? I think it's really important because we are so equipped. We are so equipped even like with youth or mothers or somebody that's feel like, well, I don't really know anything about the world. I can contribute. No, you can contribute. If you know how to make cookies, you can make cookies for people to get together to (laughs) eat it. And that's your blessing. <laughs> yeah. Yes. It doesn't require more than that. Yeah, we all that's, have a part to play. Yes. That's, Rebecca, that is, 
the lovely you know the the name of our the podcast fierce and lovely and just really looking for ways that women are balancing those two and i think that's it that's what you just illustrated of of wanting to just create life and beauty at the table with diversity of opinion and thought and that that is how we love one another well that is how we come against injustice in the best and most beautiful ways. So thank you. Thanks for for sharing that. Thanks for talking with me today. I can't wait to talk with you again in the fall when your book comes out and we can hear a little bit more of your personal journey in, in all of this. But Rebecca, I just appreciate you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much, Beth. And I'm looking forward to talk to you more about my book. So the title is What They Meant for Evil. And uh, yeah, in the fall, we can dig more into why is that title, What They Meant for Evil. Mm. So thank you so much. I appreciate it. And I just hope for our sisters in the United States um, to just seek out information, to be open, we become more productive when we hear from diverse background and and ask the question, how can we move forward? We will all receive a blessing if we sit together and brainstorm. Amen. Such an honor to talk with uh, Rebecca Dang and to hear a little bit of her perspective and just to listen to her accent and to be reminded that we have so much in common and we have sisters who herald from all over the world throughout various cultures who speak various languages, but all have such similar passions because we all reflect the image of God. And as women, we have inherent qualities that represent God in us. And I loved seeing that in Rebecca. What we began to insinuate towards the end of that podcast was that she and I are going to be cooking up, hopefully, some beautiful, fierce and lovely experiences um, with her and I kind of co-shepherding you into uh, spaces in Africa. I cannot wait to dream more about that with her. Stay tuned for another episode from Rebecca next fall when her book releases, and you'll be able to hear far more of her personal journey, um, what they meant for evil, and you can pre-order it now. I'll share the link in the show notes. I hope you enjoyed listening and that you'll follow along with Rebecca's journey. I love all of you listeners and love that you're in this journey alongside of us. This is Beth Bruno, and you've been listening to the Fierce and Lovely Podcast.